Hey queer friends, are you ready to be inspired? Welcome to Season 5 of Coming Out and Beyond, a podcast that shares stories from the LGBTQIA community. Here's your host, Anne-Marie Zanzel. Hi, this is Anne-Marie and welcome back to another episode of Coming Out and Beyond LGBTQIA Plus Stories. I'm very excited to have Amy Nielsen on the show today. Amy is a divorce attorney and having almost a decade of experience as a family law attorney coming from a family of divorce and having gone through her own divorce, Amy is an expert in navigating the emotional, logistical, and legal aspects of restructuring families. Amy is a licensed attorney in California, but serves people all over the country as a certified divorce coach. After ignoring basically every incredible obvious sign that she was gay at 38 years old, and after almost 10 years of marriage to a man, she finally came out to herself. She is now she now co-parents her two kids and dog pepperoni with her ex-husband who lives five houses away. Amy, welcome to the show. Hi, so glad to be here. So tell me your story. Sure. So the coming out story um, starts with about 38 years of complete somehow missing every sign. Like I, um, I don't know how, um, but you know, young, as a young child, I was very um, active in soccer, which probably would have been sign number one, very, very into sports and very invested in my relationships with my friends, um, which bordered, you know, on obsessive, (laughs) whatever best friend I had at the time. Um, But I ignored all of that and all of the years of trying to find men I was attracted to. And so in that way, I was a late bloomer, even with men. There were points that I knew there. It wasn't like I just had no clue the whole time. There were these glimpses of understanding myself and just running back too scared. And it had to be finally this moment where I don't know if it was COVID or, you know, all these other things had to come together for me to actually start to be able to be open to what I probably already knew all the way back then. Well, that, you know, I had a very similar experience because when I came out, both my sister and my best friend from high school, I came out to them and both of them that I had, I had told them years ago, I was gay and I I have no memory of it whatsoever. That is so validating for me to hear because I, my, my best friend, Lily, who did come out before me, which was such a blessing. She had a partner and they're married now, but this would have been like eight years ago. She says, I told her I was gay. She says we were walking one day and I was like, oh, well I'm married, but I'm gay. And like, if I wasn't married, I would be gay. I have no memory of that. I have no reason not to believe her, but it's like, these moments of truth, we disassociate or something from the experience. I don't know. I think so too, because you know, with my with my sister, it had been like six years before, but with my friend, it had been twenty years before. Mm-hmm. So somewhere, you know, I didn't come out till fifty. So somewhere around thirty, thirty-two, I said, you know, I you know, I think I'm gay, and it's really amazing that I just didn't remember it at all. I I was blown away when both of them said. Oh, you've mm-hmm. told me this before. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, and and you know, I consider myself a pretty together person and a pretty with it person. Um, so that really, really shocked me. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious. So um sometimes when people come out later in life, um, yes, they have a catalyst, but they also have a moment 
like in their lives where something really changes. And honestly, um, COVID was that for a lot of people. I definitely had an uptick in business after COVID because people were, um, have, they had time to reflect. They were living at home. They had time to reflect. And oftentimes they're spending a lot of time with their spouse and they're like, I'm not happy here. Did you have any major life event? Because sometimes people have a major life event, like a parent dies, uh, um, you know, somebody gets sick, you know, something major. Did anything like that happen for you? I think it really was COVID for me also. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I um, was at home with, I have two kids. um, And at the time I think they were like four, three or four and six, you know, young. um, And they were around and the mental load and I was still working and doing everything. And I started to resent my ex. And, you know, so the sort of in the air was this feeling of discontent Mm -hmm. uh, and, and not having my friendships all the time, which I had always relied really heavily on my female friendships in, you know, in feeling sad in order to feel satisfied in my marriage and not having that was a big, big part of it too. And then it's, it's probably the most cliche story, part of my story, but somebody told me I had to read Untamed by Glennon Doyle. And and I was like, okay, I'm going to read this still not even a clue that any of my, uh, you know, feeling of discontentment had to be with being gay or anything like that. And I'm reading it. And then the, the, you know, the time where she says something like, and then I saw her and this is her or something. And I was like, I don't even have another her, but I was like, my heart just stopped. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, yeah, that, that book in that time, like in that crazy period of time, I think that was just like, and then having the catalyst at the same time. And also Mm -hmm. I think large part too, just feeling like a growing acceptance of queer people was a Mm -hmm. huge part of it too. Um, I, I don't think it felt like healthy or safe or, you know, well, it was really interesting for me because, um, you know, marriage wasn't, gay marriage wasn't approved until 2015. And so I do think that did have a factor for some of us. Um, but I also know for me, the 2016 election was really big because that's the year I came out. Mm-hmm. And I remember at the time saying, you know, oh gosh, if the Democrat wins, um, then I'll definitely come out. But if the Republican comes mm-hmm. you know, I I will. And here, you know, I just want to say to people who are listening, I'm talking about choice. The choice wasn't that I was gay. The choice was whether I was going to come out or not. Mm -hmm. So just Mm -hmm. be very clear about that. And, um, and then the Republican won. And then I'm like, I'm like, F this. <laughs> I was so angry that I was like, I'm coming out. Yeah. And, you know, that's really in, and I was already in the process of it at that point, but I wasn't going to stop because yeah. Was, yeah. Know, I, was, I just didn't want to do that. Yeah. Know? Oh my God, Barb, didn't we have a great time at our workshop in January? Things you got to know. Oh my gosh. It was fantastic. And For those who don't know, this was our workshop for women who are coming out. So many people signed up. It was great connecting with all of those women. And you know what, Emery? I think we should do it again. And we are. So we will be hosting this workshop uh, February 19th through the 22nd. It's going to be hosted in the evening this time, 7 p.m. Central Time. And if you want to join us, just go to our website, comingoutsupport.net. That's comingoutsupport.net. Signing up is easy, it is free, and it is for any woman who is navigating the challenges of coming out. We'll see you in February. So you are a divorce attorney. 
before you got divorced? Yes. Um, I was a, I've been a divorce attorney for nine, nine plus years. Um, and I think uh, speaking of COVID, we watched as, because, you know, other parts of the world were ahead of us with COVID, you know, and, and being impacted by it. So we could see coming out of parts of Asia, their divorce rates skyrocketing. So as divorce attorneys, me and some of my colleagues were watching the trends going, we're next. And it really did happen. There mm-hmm. were a lot of people where their divorces, maybe they would have been able to last, who knows, at least years more. Um, mm-hmm. And they just felt like they couldn't take one second longer. Of course, it complicated things a lot that custody schedules and, you know, no school closures. And so, you know, it, it my profession was very crazy. Busy very busy. Um, but also, you know, people were so strapped for money. And so we started to try to get really creative about more efficient ways to help people through their divorces, which has been a really big goal of mine as an attorney. Not -hmm. everybody has the amount of money that the average divorce takes. Um, So that's a big part of my, my work now is trying to find more efficient ways to help people really do their own divorces as much as possible if they can. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, COVID made, just a lot of people make their minds up a lot faster probably than they would have. Um, so I definitely saw that. So how has your perspective of divorce changed now that you've gone through it yourself? Yeah, such a great question. So much. I mean, I, I think a lot, maybe I was a little bit naive or cocky going into my own divorce. You know, I, I witnessed my own parents' divorce, which was its own thing and very amicable, very sort of 80s, 90s, which is my mom had the kids, my dad didn't, you know, saw us when it was, you know, on the weekends, that kind of thing. But it worked. And so I didn't really think much about it. And then professionally, I spent the beginning part of my career as a litigator. So I would help people who came in and said, I want more time with my kids. I want more money. And we would fight for them. You know, we would represent them in whatever requests that they wanted to make, as long as it was within, you know, the bounds of what the law would allow. Mm-hmm. And then what happened in my divorce, the big, the big issue was the house, which happens. It's usually the number one financial asset in the marriage other than maybe retirement. Yeah. If you're lucky. (laughs) And, um, so we had a house and it was the biggest asset. And for me, it was really important because my kids bedrooms were there and our memories were there. And so I started our divorce going like, well, I'm just as like, I'm just as entitled to the house as he is. Here's why I should get the house. And very in my, what, what I'll say, what I call now, like the position of it, not the need or even really the want, but just the position. I deserve this as much as he does. I want this. And in my legal practice, um, up until then, I, I would have taken my own case and said, sure, let's fight for the house. You know, we can file a motion with the court. We can go heavy into negotiating and mediating. And then I had to really take a step back because I had no interest in doing any of that. And I had to really start to consider why do I want this house? What does it mean to me? What really matters? What are my real goals? Mm-hmm. And that shifted how I practiced completely. And now I really spend a lot, a lot of time getting my clients clear on what their goals are. And they're not usually one particular asset or even a visitation schedule. It's like having a strong relationship with my kids, feeling financially secure being in the same neighborhood so that, you know, my kids can walk back and forth between the houses, which is what ultimately we ended up doing mm-hmm. or not fighting. A lot of people come in and say they want an amicable divorce, but then they come in with a lot of positions. I need this, I need this, I need this. 
So it shifted my practice to being really more holistic and more goal oriented. And, and I have to get really granular with my clients about what goals are, because they'll still come in with goals. Like I want, you know, as much money as I can get, or I want it to be fair. And in divorce coaching and in family law, fair is the F word. There's no such thing as fair. You know, there's what is fair. It's completely subjective. So, you know, ultimately with my, with me in the house, I just said, I just need to have enough money out of the house so that I could buy another house in the neighborhood. And it doesn't have to be as nice as the house that we had, which it's not. Um, but then, you know, a house opened up five houses down and around the corner. So we don't have to look at each other, but it opened up. And, you know, because I was able to say to him, you can have the house. I know that's important to you, but I need the money soon enough to buy this house. Mm-hmm. I had a good will from him to be able to have him see that this is something we both value, having the kids be able to have some flexibility. I'm going to give him something that meant a lot to him, a house he had spent a lot of time working on. Mm-hmm. And now we have the kind of relationship where, uh-oh, there's a toy at dad's house. Okay, you can go, go grab it and come back. Mm-hmm. Um, walk to school together every morning because his house is on the way to school. So the kids see each other, see us every morning. And sometimes like, I get a little sad when I see my old house, you know, and I'm like, oh, it's so much bigger than my house. But most of the time, I'm, I feel really proud of how we were able to navigate it. And I can't say that everyone can say that about their divorces. And of course, that <laughs> <laughs> guy absolutely cannot. It was, a, it was very hard. Yeah. And, and, you know, of course, of course, there are so many cases where this just can't work. If there's domestic violence or if there's emotional abuse or financial abuse or a narcissist on the other side, like there are, it's, I'm not suggesting that this is the outcome that's possible for all cases, but it's not possible at all if you're stuck in your position and you're not budging and you're really like in your ego when it comes to your divorce. And even all of those other scenarios that I've had, like with a narcissistic ex or somebody who's really being difficult, you can navigate those. You can do what you can do. You can control your behavior. You can have boundaries. You, there is a lot you can do, even in the face of all of those things. It might not end up with a divorce where you walk to school together with your ex every day, yeah. but it can be a scenario where you get peace. You can have your own sense of peace. And that is how I then shifted and now started a settlement focused law practice. And uh, for the most part, don't go to court at all and mediate cases, coach people through mediation or through their own cases or, in, or through their litigation too. Um, but yeah, that's how my practice is. It's changed a lot. So how is coaching? Because you also are a divorce coach. Mm-hmm. Versus being I, the lawyer. I mean, of course, you're a lawyer. You can practice in California, mm-hmm. what other state you're, you know, legally allowed to practice. Right. But how is it different? It's a really good question. And divorce coaching in particular is pretty new. It's mm-hmm. it's very exciting. Recently, the American Bar Association recognized it as a as a tool in alternative dispute resolution. So that's really exciting. There's still a lot of like figuring out how it's different. So there are people who do it who aren't lawyers at all. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's very clear they're giving no legal advice or they shouldn't be giving legal advice. That's right. a big lag if they I are. Don't give, with my clients, I don't give legal yeah. advice because I always tell them all to go talk to somebody because that's not my role. Yeah. And, and that's I, good to hear. Yeah, <laughs> I've heard. No, I don't, every, every state, every country has different, different. Oh, different. I can't okay. give any type of advice. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's the tricky part as a lawyer is, if they're in California, the lines can be blurrier if we determine that they're going to do more of a legal coaching. Um, mm-hmm. 
But when it's strictly divorce coaching, I'm not giving advice. I can offer, you know, education and resources when it comes to the law. But outside of that, it's figuring out, can you afford to keep the house? Mm-hmm. Figuring out um, what your goals are, what they look like. What is a reasonable visitation schedule when you have a three-year-old? What is a reasonable visitation schedule for a teenager? You know, what, how do you communicate with your ex so that you can get your requests in, but not blow up things and, you know, be assertive, but not, you know, aggressive. And so there's, there's a lot to it that is outside of the law. In fact, you know, I used to say all the time when I was just doing divorce law, like we're just scratching the surface here. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of these people really need to slow down and to actually have longer conversations because they'll come to me and say, I want to file a motion to enforce this custody agreement. He's being so difficult. And then they'll send me a bunch of communication and I'm like, you're being difficult. <laughs> you know, I can see the way you're communicating and it's feeding into this dynamic and really what you need. And maybe you need to file a motion eventually, but what you need to, to do is also look at how you're communicating and look mm-hmm. at what role you're playing in it. And why aren't you holding a boundary when he talks to you like that and all this kind of stuff. So divorce coaching is really all of that. um, It's more about the emotional aspect of the divorce. And you know, you know enough about the legal system. If somebody has like a more uh, concrete question about divorce, you're able to point them in the right direction. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Where in the divorcing process does somebody typically hire a divorce coach? I suggest before anything, even before you've necessarily decided to get a divorce, because there you can be strategic in what you're doing before you get a divorce. It can help you decide whether you want to get a divorce, sort of play out how things are going to look. Um, so ideally then, and the divorce coach can also help you find an attorney, help you, uh, which is actually one of the best and most important help you can get from a divorce attorney or from a divorce coach, because who you pick as a divorce attorney will dictate a lot of how much it's going to cost, the tone you're setting. You know, there are attorneys like me who are settlement focused. So mm-hmm. in, you know, I'm in primarily in the Bay Area of California. And so if somebody sees, oh, they've hired Amy Nielsen, the other side can say, oh, she's a settlement focused attorney. This is going to be great. We're going to start working towards negotiating right away. There are attorneys where if you see their name on the petition, you know, it's a different kind of case. You know, they're going to file a motion right away. Things are going to be different. And then there are attorneys who, you know, you might not know how retainers work. And so how much retainer is reasonable or, you know, how picking an attorney is a huge part of it. Sometimes you're undoing the work that an attorney has done as a divorce coach. You know, you come in and like these people are in the middle of litigation and you're like, do you even know why you're litigating anymore? What are you looking for out of this? Um, so the earlier in the process, the better, but I also see people who come in 10 years after they've gotten a divorce because they have to modify their custody schedule. The kids are older. What do we do now? Um, supports ending. How do I know what I need? How do I know what's reasonable? Um, those kinds of things. So it's the whole process, but the earlier I can get to people, the better. So you said when you were filling out, um, you know, the form I have everyone fill out, you said there's a big difference between straight divorces and queer divorces. And I would really love to hear about yeah. that. Yeah, it's a funny question because I I actually spent a great deal of time when I was building the practice I have now after coming out, Googling like queer divorce and trying to see who's catering to our community. And mm-hmm. it's not a lot of people, which was really disappointing to me. But what a lot of people did have on their websites would be sort of a tab that said, you know, LGBTQIA divorce. And I would click on it and they'd be like, they're the same. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
that's true in the sense that the law treats them the same, meaning theoretically the, the framework for dividing assets and debts is the same. Mm-hmm. But it's different because of the way that you're coming into the divorce as an individual. Just like every divorce is different, in particular, right. there's a sort of sort of inherent sense of what might come up in a queer divorce. So some of it is there is some things because, for example, a lot of people couldn't get married, so they had domestic partnership registered domestic partnerships, and so you have to figure out dissolving that or how to you know the timeline of when you became married. And there are some issues around third parent um, cases, which I've done quite a bit of, where there's two moms and a dad or three moms or, you know, all kinds of things. And in, in California, it wasn't that long ago that they started recognizing third parents. Um, so there are some legal things that are in particular specific or more likely to be um, coming up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there's just the way that queer people come into divorce. You know, a lot of people feel a lot of shame in their divorce and more so with queer people who feel like we fought so hard for the right to be able to get married Mm-hmm. And now I feel like this is some kind of betrayal to my community that I'm not able to continue being married, which right. couldn't be further from the truth, but they're bringing that into their marriage or they're bringing it into it because of someone like you and I who are getting divorced as we come out. And mm-hmm. so we're their own internalized shame about either coming out later or coming out at all and what that means for our ex-partners. So there's a lot of emotional pieces to it that really dictate how they're going to come into the divorce, whether they're going to come into it feeling empowered, feeling good about themselves, or they're going to come into it feeling, you know, bad about it and ashamed and not willing to stand up maybe for themselves and what they need through the process. Mm-hmm. So I see a lot of that happening. Mm-hmm. There's also just, a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And there's also just, you know, in the court system, there's bias, just like every other part of the, you know, of the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I, I, simple things like um, in your ch- child support calculator, uh, there's a program that prepares it that defaults to mom and dad, mm-hmm. mother and father. And I'll see people who come in, who've come to me from other attorneys and it still says mom and dad mm-hmm. and it's two, two moms or two dads or two non-binary people or whatever the case might be. And they feel, you know, like it's not a big deal. Like it doesn't change their case, but it feels bad. It feels like this person doesn't even get me enough to realize that that's not even my, you know, the sex that I am or. Yeah. Um, that's not even my, my, my label. Yeah. As yeah. a parent, right? Yeah, yeah. I understand that. Yeah. So I have a really so this so a lot of the women I work with, um, as we were talking before, you know, I start with coming out, and then it turns into a lot of divorce support and a di- lot of divorce work. My own sense of divorce and what I believe about divorce has changed so much since I've had my own divorce. Um, so a lot of women, a lot of people have this, like, we're going to have this big, happy, modern family, you know, like you're talking about, like, it sounds like you have something really special, which most people I find don't get. Um, How do you know if, uh, if the couple is a good candidate to do either um, mediation, or the other one, which I can't think of right now? I don't know which one you're talking there oh, oh, collaborative divorce oh collaborative divorce yeah yeah. No, yeah like how do you know if somebody is a really you know they're gonna be able to do this yeah I mean it's more that I know when people aren't um, okay say more say what yeah I mean I would never somebody with um any allegations of physical abuse obviously would not be the case if somebody feels bullied in any way it's not going to work but even mediation I, I like to be optimistic so I'll try almost mm-hmm. any time, unless it's really unsafe. 
especially now because mediation is by, by Zoom, they're not even in the same Zoom room. Like they're literally in separate rooms when they're mediating. So you don't have to have mediation be this sitting in the same room, you know, having to be with them physically and having to talk directly. You can mediate even through separate rooms with the same mediator. So I'm open-minded that unless it's really unsafe for a client, it's worth a shot. And it doesn't have to resolve all the issues. You can just knock off the top two things that need to happen in order for the rest of it to, to proceed in a different way. But it's almost always economical to mediate as much as you can do. In, um, in the counties I work in, they're required to go to mediation if you file a motion for custody or visitation order. You just require different, different uh, counties have different ways that it happens, but you're required to go. And even when there's domestic violence, they... They go to mediation. Again, they're not going at the same time, but they both talk to a mediator who then makes recommendations. So Mm -hmm. even then, there are ways that you can find a middle ground somewhere, um, not always perfectly, or at least the mediator can make recommendations and say, this is what I would expect to happen in court. So take that with, as you will, you know, I'll absolutely make that recommendation to people if they're coming in and say, that's not going to happen. That should be off the table as you're negotiating. But more often than not, it's worth a shot. Again, not if it's not safe or anyone feels like, you know, the process is going to be traumatic for them in any way or triggering. But if you can, with the right support, feel empowered to go into the mediation process, it's usually worth a shot. Mm -hmm. So when do you find that people, when people, you said people who can't mediate, when is the time to move to like a legal? with divorce Mm -hmm. somebody simply can't do it or is it when there's other factors involved that mediation just simply can't work so there's there's a timeline for divorces and there are a lot of times where court might be necessary so some people think like there's divorce trial that's very uncommon that's like I don't even know what the statistics are but you know probably I would just don't quote me, but somewhere in the five to 10% at most would go to that phase. But there are lots of little hearings that might happen if you can't resolve a particular issue. So if you're at an impasse for long enough, sometimes you have to do it. It's just, you just can't go on forever. Um, An example would be in California. If you don't ask for spousal support formally, you're not going to get it. So um, meaning like you won't get it retroactively. If I wait a year into my divorce and then, and you know, your ex is saying, Oh, one day I'll pay you. Just give me another week. I'll respond to that. Give me another week. Or they don't, you guys can't talk at all. He won't, he'll ignore you or she'll ignore you. Um, you have to eventually file something or you're just going to lose out on all that spousal support you might receive. So there's strategic times that you need to do it. Or if you guys are trying to have some informal custody arrangement, but somebody is not following it you might need to go and get specific orders from the court. Otherwise you have nothing enforceable. So there are certain times where it's, it, things just can't be informal anymore. You just have to have something that's signed off by a judge. Uh, it's unfortunate, that, but it happens. And one of the biggest times I see court being necessary is just when one person's stonewalling and they're just not coming to the table at all. And they're not, the status quo is working for them. Maybe you came out, you moved out of the house, you met somebody else. And now for some reason, all your stuff's in the house, you can't get it, but your ex is very happy in the house that you're probably still paying the mortgage on to. And, you know, they have no reason to start negotiating with you because everything's really great for them. Sometimes in a situation like that, you have to start to get the court involved in order to move things forward. I like to do everything I can up until that point. But even in my practice now, there are times where I have to 
either help somebody else file something on their own to you know, save money and do it themselves or refer them to an attorney who can help them more when it comes to litigating. But there are times where at least the threat of filing or filing itself, but not actually going through with the whole process becomes necessary just to get motivated, get the parties motivated to actually get things done. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the, the question is always like, what happens if you don't? Are you gonna lose out on money? Are you gonna lose out on time with your kids? You know, what are the repercussions? Are they, is the risk of kind of blowing things up worth it to file? And sometimes the answer is yes, but that's really up to the client to know, up to you mm-hmm. to understand what, you know, what matters most to you. How often, how often I have heard is that once you get divorced, like I know child custody agreements can be revisited, but often the divorce, once it's final, it's final. And you really can't make much changes to that ruling. Is that true? So in California, custody and visitation is always modifiable. There there are legal standards for how you modify it. There has to be a change in circumstances. Um, And it's so unfortunate, but it really has to do with the discretion of the judge that you're assigned to of whether Mm -hmm. or not it will. So you might have a really sympathetic judge who sees you saying, this isn't working for our child and and really care. And there'll be some people who will say, this is a status quo. This is what's been going on forever. Nothing terrible has happened yet. I'm going to leave things the way they are. Mm-hmm. It's a real, it's a real crapshoot, to be honest. Yeah. It's like rolling the dice. Yeah. And you know, if you have an attorney that practices specifically in your, in, in family law, which is a big one for me, if somebody, if you're hiring an attorney, I'm not saying all attorneys who don't focus on family law are bad, but if you have an attorney that's does 10 different things, they might not understand the nuances of the particular jurisdiction you're in. And with family law, you want to know your judges because you can say, oh, this judge is more sympathetic in these kinds of cases, or this is how I would frame it with this judge. It's going to be really important to have an attorney that's experienced in your particular area. Um, But yeah, that judge will have a lot to say. And depending also on the county, the mediator might actually provide a report to the judge too. So you really want to win over the mediator also. Um, And so can divorce be modified after it's done? So it depends on your judgment and your, the agreement you have. There are times where, again, this is specific to California, but um, with spousal support, it'll be open-ended. It might say um, it's modifiable based on changes to the income of both parties until a certain day and then it terminates. Or you know, it might just go on forever until it's revisited by agreement or by court order. So in that case, it would be that you could revisit any of those things. Um, that's not what I, I like to keep things done (laughs) for closure. I think it's really important. Um, but, but, you know, some people, they don't know what's going to happen and they don't want to, for example, agree to paying 10 years of spousal support. If they don't know if their career is going to tank or, um, you know, whatever the case may be, but for example, some people choose to keep the house co-owned. It's a deferred sale of the house is what people will do because they don't know what the market's going to do. Um, and then they have to determine if one of them can buy each other out in years later, in which case you're kind of reopening the whole issue again. Um, Mm -hmm. and then like custody and visitation and also child support, um, are always modifiable. So, you know, you're not really done (laughs) until you're done. Unfortunately, if you don't have kids and you have an attorney who understands that you want closure, you can get an agreement that's done, but otherwise it's things can unfortunately come up later. And we do a quite a bit of what's called post-judgment work. So complicated, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> it really, really is. I'm really glad you're, that you're doing coaching because I think that's really, really important. I My last question for you is that we were talking before about how most divorces are initiated by women. Mm-hmm. That's a true fact, as you said, yes, they are. Mm-hmm. And 
So my question to you is, why do you think? So that's a great question. And I did so much digging on this in the last couple of years. And actually what's really interesting to me is that the highest level of divorce is between two women Mm -hmm. for the same reason, because women initiate divorce more often. The well, lowest- I can, I'll give you my theory about that. Okay. Well, okay. I have the overall theory and from what I've read, and this I would say reflects my experience is that women are less inclined to be unhappy for longer mm-hmm. periods of time. They are, they are less likely to live in a status quo where they feel unsatisfied. Men for whatever reason are just accept, can accept more often than not that this is how things are. Maybe they'll change. Maybe they won't. Women won't live like that for too much, as as long as men will. This is what I've read. I don't know if that's true or not, but I think what happens. Yeah, I would disagree. I would say um, that, first of all, that I'm a a huge feminist. I think the patriarchy favors men Mm -hmm. and men often often have a lot of their needs taken care of by their wife. Not just, I'm not talking about sex. I'm talking about just caregiving emotional caregiving, you know, housework, children, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. A lot of women bear the brunt of that. Mm-hmm. And so men often like, why would you change that? Yeah. <laughs> Everything's going well and you like your wife or you love her. Yeah. I don't think that's reason. For the the two the two uh women, I think because of the marginalization of women. I think that is one of the reasons why it's really tricky. It is tricky to be two married women in Mm -hmm. this world. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that, um, I think minority stress that happens to lesbian women, you know, especially depending on where you are, it really Mm -hmm. doesn't matter because you could live in California, but you come from the middle of California and your parents are super conservative and they won't talk to you and your wife, Mm -hmm. you know, it really doesn't matter. So I think that women often, and also because they are on the margins of the patriarchy, I think that causes a lot of stress for women. So I think that like queer relationships, I think people should give themselves a break and have some self-compassion because having a successful queer relationship in a heteronormative world is a very challenging thing to do because most queer people don't get the kind of support or validation that um, straight couples do. Mm-hmm. Most queer couples, um, like our relationships are not respected or honored the way that a straight relationship is. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of stress on queer relationships, whether you talk about it or not, it's still there. And so yeah. that's one of the reasons why, um, um, you know, Marriage, divorce happens in the queer community, but also women and divorce is because a lot of times I think that I agree with you. Women won't put up with this. When they're really unhappy, they just can't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I, you know, it's interesting what you're talking about with, um, you know, uh, navigating being in a queer relationship. And I think, you know, speaking to my own experience, there was this, you know, this amazingly magical thing when I, I've been with my partner now for two years and I love her so dearly. And I just couldn't wrap my head around what this relationship is supposed to be like, because I only knew one type of relationship my whole life. And that was the, really what I realized were pretty traditional roles. I, I didn't think that at the time. I mean, I, you know, I was 
with you, with Hillary and a feminist, and all <laughs> you know, and I was like the primary breadwinner. So I didn't really think that, but it was really the expectations from the outside and from us around how to do things. And also just to have somebody else who also had really big emotions that were allowed to come out that, you know, my ex-husband just didn't have those skills or, or didn't feel that he had the room to do that, even if I had the space for it. And so navigating, oh, okay, we're both like equally powerful and vulnerable. And we're both doing this, this kind of equality dance of you know, there's we're making our own rules really at the end of the day. And right. man, it's a lot, that's a lot of work and it's a lot of it pressure. A lot of work. And yeah. you know, I like, so as somebody who was in a pretty traditional marriage for most of my marriage, um, being married to a woman now is um, so different. And like, it really is more of the little things for me um, and this is going to sound so like 1950s, but um, I really love that. Like when we get ready for a party, when we're having friends over, we do it together. Mm-hmm. It's really nice that she doesn't ask me what to do next. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> she just does it. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, we switch roles a lot. And like, you know, sometimes she's like, we, we call it the house frau. Sometimes she's the house frau. Sometimes I'm the house frau. (laughs) I don't ever, I never resent that because in my old marriage, I had responsibility for Mm -hmm. 100% Mm -hmm. of that stuff. Yeah. Even when I was working full time. Yeah. And, Yeah. And no matter how much I asked, and I would say it nicely, I would say it angrily, um, you know, I'm asked a million different ways. It just mm-hmm. wouldn't be that. Yeah. And that well, was really frustrating for me as a human being, yeah. you know? And yeah. so now that I'm in a relationship with a woman, um, that does not happen anymore. Yeah. None of that stuff happens anymore. And we're both older. So like, we're, you know, we're just older. We're yeah. just chill about that stuff, you know? There's something about it that is also interesting, which is you might end up in a traditional relationship, meaning one person does more of the, what would have been considered male thing. Maybe they earn more or they are more, you know, my partner, for example, like is upstairs right now fixing my, um, shower curtain things. I don't even know. Like I I didn't even know it was broken. You know, she'll do that kind of thing or she, you know, she's more likely to do yard work or whatever, but it's not a default. It's not because she's a man. I don't, do more decorating because I'm a woman. It's because we, that's what we're both into. And we've had the discussion around our strengths, what we like, how to divide labor based on what we're good at, what we enjoy doing, not just by some default that this is how it's supposed to happen. Yes. And so it's, yeah, I agree with you. That's yeah, which is beautiful. It really is. It's it, the problem is when you start to make assumptions, um, both in, in heterosexual marriages and any, any relationship is that you assume it has to be this way because of you know, that's what we grew up. So i.e., for example, you're the spouse that makes more money, but you're, but your wife actually works more. You know what I mean? Totally. Totally. Like just because you make more money doesn't mean you're going to have less responsibilities at home. Yes. We could talk about in our couples counseling session. No, I'm just kidding. Um, But I, that, that is one that I had to kind of think about a lot is that just because I'm providing more financially, this was true in my heterosexual marriage too. Like how do you, that doesn't determine how much you do within the family structure or within the household structure. It's all just to be navigated. It's really to be, to be. Wouldn't it be cool if straight women and straight couples could do that? Because I think they could learn a lot from the queer community. 
we don't have rules, which is actually yeah. sort of cool because you can make what you want. Totally. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap this up here yeah. asking you, do you have a coming out song? I mean, what I'll say is that the entire Frozen 2 soundtrack was <laughs> really, really huge for me, still is. Listen to it all the time. Show Yourself is the big one. But yes, Frozen 2. And apparently Frozen 3 is coming out. And the rumor on the street is that Elsa might actually have a girlfriend or have some queer relationship. So who knows? But oh, that'd be so cool. I know. <laughs> and um, your book, the book or movie that you're Untamed. Untamed. Yeah. For sure. really, yeah. And um, how do you describe your life today? Uh, a work in progress, for sure. Just figuring it all out and starting from scratch in a lot of ways, in a good way. Mm -hmm. I think life is always a work in progress and we're never done. So. Yep. yep. Amy, thank you so much for coming. Thank on you. It's great. So today it was great to talk to you and great to talk to somebody that really understands what it's like to get divorced and also like coming out as queer and like figuring all that stuff out. Um, you can find Amy at www.bloomlegalcoach.com. It was great having you on the show today. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Coming Out and Beyond, LGBTQIA plus stories with Anne-Marie Zanzel. New episodes of the Coming Out and Beyond podcast drop every other Friday. You can tune in at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and at annemariezanzel.com. Be sure to hit subscribe when tuning in so you never miss an episode. And for more resources, articles, videos, and a free downloadable guide for coming out later in life, visit annemariezanzel.com.